Cinema was born in darkness. It couldn't function without it. In fact, the gloom was often more of an attraction than the film. Early cinema managers spoke of selling their audiences a penny worth of dark. And creatures who live in the dark are pretty hard to investigate. Think of those eyeless cave fish or strange transparent subterranean shrimp. But right now, we're going to take the usherette's torch and shine a light into the auditorium. My name is Matthew Sweet, and this is the podcast from Intelligent Life, sister magazine of The Economist, where you can hear our contributors in conversation. Today, the film critic Tom Schoen joins me on the line from New York to share his observations about a group of people who've been doing their thing for almost 120 years, the cinema audience. Tom, your piece in the November-December issue of the magazine considers the relationship between directors and audiences. Do directors like audiences, do you think, or are they something they have to learn to live with? Well, if you speak to most directors, they won't admit to thinking about the audience very much. There's a division between the auteurs who are not supposed to be thinking of the audience at all and the kind of commercial directors who do. And so nobody likes to be thought of as thinking about the audience too much. So it's a difficult thing to get them to talk about. But if you then speak about specific films, then, of course, they reveal a kind of encyclopedic knowledge of every cough and hum and ha that they've ever heard in a screening room because, of course, it all gets imprinted straight into their psyches. So whatever they say about it, they are all interested, are they? They are all... They do all have those moments where they hang about at the back of the auditorium listening to what an audience is doing. Absolutely, yeah, they all do. I mean, the, the premise for the piece was that... I didn't believe the directors that said they had no relationship with the audience or that they never thought of the audience. That in and of itself is a relationship towards the audience. And we all know what it's like to watch the film of somebody who says they don't think of the audience very much. One thinks of someone like Scorsese. His films are a violent assault often. He's bearing out some antagonism towards the audience, I think. The relationship with the audience can be a sort of pleasure-giving one, as it is with someone like Spielberg. It can also be, on occasion, kind of borderline abusive, wherein the audience really kind of get it in the neck. So I was sort of interested in all the sort of varieties of relationships that directors have with their audience, and it struck me that there was some resemblance, not complete, but there was some resemblance to interpersonal relationships, you know, like family relationships, relationships with parents or with children. And once I got going down that road, I thought, oh, no, that actually applies quite a lot. You can come out of a Bressel film feeling like you've been given a bit of a telling off by a very stern father. You can come out of a Spielberg film feeling like you've been swung around the room by an extremely jovial parent. There's something very primal about that relationship. The Austrian director Michael Haneke is one of your key examples. He strikes me as being a figure who might be the punishing father. His films, films like The White Ribbon, seem to be organised around the idea of making us feel bad to punish us for something. I mean, do you think a director like that genuinely holds us all in contempt? I don't. If you speak to them about it, they, he's the most courteous, gentle soul imaginable. And he speaks of his films as if they're these sort of rather gentle offerings. So it's really peculiar. There's a bit of a disconnect. But I think that all this stuff is largely unconscious. I think that it's not their job to necessarily think about all this stuff and, and put a kind of conscious frame around it. I think often the case that, you know, when they're working creatively, they are not thinking about how they're coming across or what the relationship is like. But that's kind of what makes it special, really. And what about a figure like the director Billy Wilder, who made Some Like It Hot and 
double indemnity. You describe how he would make sure that there was room left on the soundtrack of a film, room left in a performance on a film, by getting some of his actors to, to shake maracas, to allow that space to appear. His films give such pleasure. I mean, he, he, he would read the script. This is for Some Like It Hot, and he knew exactly where the laughs were going to come. He could just feel it. And, you know, a lot of the time, the question when you're editing a film is making sure that there's space for the laugh so that if the audience are laughing, they're not obscuring the next setup of the next gag. So he gave Jack Lemmon a pair of maracas when he comes through the window and some like it hot. And he literally timed out the laughs with the maracas. So he would make the joke and then give a little shake of the maracas, which was just something for the actors to occupy themselves with while the audience were laughing. <laughs> so giving us a time to recover. I use that just as an example of just how in touch with the audience that generation, I mean, the best of them really, were with their audience. There was this extremely intimate connection. The directors then prided themselves on that ability to be completely simpatico with their audience, to know their audience and to sort of have their hearts beating almost in sync with them. And to me, when I am, as an audience member, submitting to that, the thing that strikes me is that it's not as passive as some would make it out. There's a school of thought that says, well, these crowd pleasers, they're all, if you like, mini dictators. They're manipulating the audience. They're making them do what they otherwise would not. And there is something a little bit suspect about that. As I say, it's almost like a bit of demagoguery. And certainly that's Michael Haneke's position, that cinematic populism is really a form of demagoguery, making the audience respond almost like kind of cattle to cattle prods. And Hitchcock would sometimes boast a little bit like that. I don't believe that. I think that when it's working at its best, a movie and the audience are kind of almost engaged in a dance or a conversation. The audience are not the passive recipients of that. They have to play the game as well. And Billy Wilder was very particular on this. He would say it is a game and it takes two to play that game. The relationship feels much more reciprocal than I think you know, is commonly thought. So we shouldn't think then of these directors as, as sort of like behaviourist psychologists then, making their audiences run down mazes and to eat the right piece of cheese. <laughs> I mean, they certainly can go on that trip if they want to. What about in the case of a test audience that is really in that box, running down those tunnels, being observed by the director with a clipboard? The test audiences are there largely for the director to take notes from what the audience reaction is. If you like, that's a large piece of the conversation, this time coming from the audience. And I think that for all the cynicism that surrounds the testing of movies, and again, it's one of those things that auteurs are supposed to frown on, to me, they're just a sliver of that old golden age connection that directors like Wilder used to have with the audience. So in a strange way, I'm all in favour of the test screening process. I think it puts filmmakers back in contact with the audience, which is not to say that they can't be completely and horrendously misused by executives who want to bully filmmakers into doing their way. That makes the filmmaker the mouse, I guess. There are lots of different kinds of audiences. We've been talking about the, the multiplex audience and the test audience. What about the audience of which you and I have often been part, the audience of critics? <laughs> now, what kind of conversation is going on between them and the filmmaker? Is an audience of critics a good audience? Uh, no. In fact, in your intro, when you were talking about the strange shrimp-like creatures that live in the underwater, <laughs> I, I immediately pictured the sort of screening room full of kind of, you know, eight or ten critics. It's very unnatural viewing conditions. It's the one major thing to be said about writing film criticism is that you have to do it in the company of other film critics, and it deprives you of the audience. There's nothing I like better than either a screening at a festival, because you can actually get to see how the heat is rising, you know, whether a film is being responded to, 
or even just go out and buy a ticket. Something changes when you buy a ticket. I mean, I've found that's the one thing that critics ought to be made to do, I think, is pay for their own seat. Because once you've bought a ticket, you're just inclined to want the film to work about 2 or 3% more, and maybe even 10% more, than a critic who's sitting in a comfy seat and is, you know, bored and doesn't want to be there on a Monday morning. There's an inbuilt resistance to engagement that's kind of baked into the cake a little bit with critics all sitting down in a room. I wonder whether cinemas now as environments are much more regulated than they ever were before. Are people much better behaved in cinemas now than they used to be? And if you read accounts of cinema audiences historically, they're, <laughs> they're, they tear up the seats if they don't like a film, they throw bottles <laughs> at the screen. Um, half of them are there because you know they don't want to be observed by their parents. The, the cinema has transformed, hasn't it? It used to be a zone of mild sexual peril, possibly not even mild sexual peril. It's a very different kind of institution than it was in that golden age that you've described. Yeah, I mean, I think it's gone through many evolutions. And let's not forget the kind of air of church-like calm and quiet in which the big art films of the 60s from Europe were received once they got to American cinemas. Until movies like Jaws came along, cinemas were a lot quieter then. And then suddenly you get these big blockbusters and then the audience starts making a lot of noise as much noise as they used to make in the old silent days. Uh, Spielberg says he could always tell which part of Jaws was playing by the size of the screams as he passed by, even just outside the cinema. He would just hear them screaming and he would go, oh, OK, they're at the bit where the guy's head comes out of the boat. Which was, by the way, something he inserted into the movie. He'd already shot it, edited it, and he taped the audience reaction. And he listened to the screams and he drew a graph of them over the course of the movie and he looked at the graph and he said, I want one more scream. And he got it by inserting the shot of that guy's head flopping out of the boat underwater, which he shot in his editor's swimming pool and just quickly popped it in the movie and he got his scream. So maybe there's a good example, actually, of a filmmaker just you know, prodding the audience and feeling like there's one more point he could milk it for. Do you think the audience is undergoing a kind of revision at the moment? I mean, there are, there's so many different ways to watch films now, aren't there? We can download them at home. We can go to one of these bespoke experiences <laughs> where everybody dresses up and uh, you know, goes to a car park in the middle of nowhere that's been transformed into the spaceship from Alien, this kind of thing. That's the one thing that I find a little bit depressing is the flight from the movie theatre itself. I'm not a great fan of watching movies at home or on my phone or on airplanes. I do miss and crave the darkened environment of the movie theatre. And I honestly think that that will be, in the end, the thing that saves movies. And no matter what format changes it goes through and how much the audience is eroded by this or that home theatre experience, the act of going into a darkened space and losing yourself in a film that plays out in this kind of intimate game of kind of patter cake with you personally, but then also every other person in that room, I love that collection of solitudes that you get with everybody in their seat. And I love listening to audiences when you go. And I've worked out that I love comedies that get laughter from different parts of the audience. Oh, he found that one funny. Oh, she thought that one was funny. Those are the comedies I really like, where different sections find different jokes funny. You find that a lot with Judd Apatow's movies. Mm. There are the kind of big belly laugh moments, but I often find there's this strange rippling effect where some people have just caught something. And it's like a Mexican wave. And then finally, the rest of us might catch on or not get it or find something else funny. There's something a bit patchwork about the laughter. It's, I think that's a sign of a very textured filmmaker. Secretly, do you think this is what's kept us going to the cinema for 
over a century? Is it that strange experience of being both alone and in a group of people in the dark, all experiencing the same thing? Perhaps in some cases, you know, that's more important than what's up on the screen. I think so. I think that the audience brings so much to the experience. I mean, it plays out in their heads. The movie's projected onto the screen, but really it's projected onto the back of our heads, and it's in the cerebellum that it takes place. I think the audience have ownership of half of the experience of a movie playing. Movies play differently when they play in front of audiences. Filmmakers find stuff out about their own movie when they play them for audiences. Jokes are revealed that they didn't know were there. Screams are revealed that they didn't know were there. It's a journey of investigation for the filmmaker. They're finding out the film. It changes. Most of the lines that we think of as being the big famous lines of modern cinema, whether it be, we're going to need a bigger boat, or I'll be back in The Terminator. These things were not things that in the script anyone had thought twice about. But suddenly they played in front of an audience and these things were getting laughs. And then the filmmaker scrambles to create a little bit of space around the line to accommodate the laugh. So the audience made those jokes. The audience scripted those lines. That's how I like to think of it. Like we're kind of co-authors in the creative process. Somebody like Tarantino, who is a great fan of movies and probably even a fan before he's a movie maker. He has said something to that effect, that the audience is his kind of co-creator. They're 50% of the auteur experience. And he loves listening to people expect, give him their theories as to what his movies mean. He never contradicts them. If they turn up and say, here's what I think Reservoir Dogs is about, and they say it's about the moon landing, he thinks that's great. He says, good luck to you. He's not going to stand there and correct them just because he happened to direct it. This is wonderful kind of liberalism, I think, with him with regard to audiences. He really gets it. Thanks very much indeed, Tom Schoen. If you want to read Tom's piece, you'll find it in the November-December issue of Intelligent Life magazine. In print, on our app, or online at intelligentlifemagazine.com.